Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture, Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter chapter 2. Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'm going to relate a story to you that uh, I first heard from Brother Hagen, and uh, it's reported to be a true story. I don't know if there's any way that you can really um, run it down or verify it or whatever, but anyway, it's, uh, it was always told to be a true story, and it happened during World War II. During the, uh, uh, well, the middle part of, of World War II, the, uh, the German army was trying to break the will of the, of the English. America hadn't yet entered into the war. And um, uh, they were, as a result, trying to break the will of the English. They were um, having flying bombing raids over the, the major cities of, of England, particularly the city of London. And as a result, there were... Um, uh, it, there were a lot of difficulties and, and it was a real stressful time for the people and, and so forth. And so every night at, um, when it got good and dark, the uh, English authorities would impose a blackout in the city. They didn't want any lights to shine to, uh, to help guide the, the German bombers in toward the city of London. And uh, the, so on the nights that the radar would pick up the, uh, uh, the incoming bombers, then the air raid sirens would sound and people would come running out of their homes to the neighborhood uh, air raid shelters and many of those things were underground and trying to get in the safest location they could get. And you could imagine with bombs falling around and some hitting, some missing and things like that, that it would be a, an extremely stressful time and, and uh, there were times where people didn't make it to the air raid shelter in time and so they were killed from the falling bombs and the, the, uh, the explosions and and so forth. Well, because these uh, were neighborhood air raid shelters, the people that were close enough to get to those uh, air raid shelters or bunkers or whatever they would be called uh, got to know each other pretty well. And so they got to where they looked out for each other. Well, there was a couple of nights where the air raid sirens went off and everybody ran to the neighborhood bunker and uh, a certain person who was missing, an older lady, an elderly lady that lived by herself in the neighborhood was missing. And the bombs fell, and there was debris as a result of it, and so everybody's busy during the daylight hours cleaning up and trying to have some semblance of a normal life. Next night, the same thing, air raid sirens go off, and everybody runs to the air raid shelter, and uh, um, she's not there again. So after this happened three or four times, everybody just kind of looked at each other and without really discussing it, just assumed that she had been killed in the bombings and, and uh, you know, uh, even though there's no word or anything like that, she could have been buried under debris somewhere, and and you know it was just a everybody considered it to be a tragedy. But one of the uh, the neighborhood uh, residents was walking down a certain street and saw this lady a couple of days afterwards, and uh, so went running up to her and said, uh, "Oh, uh, dear, we we thought the worst had happened to you. You hadn't been at the air raid shelter in the last several times, and so we were just afraid something had happened to you." And she spoke up and she said, well, you know, I was reading in the Psalms. And it said that God says of himself that he never slumbers nor sleeps. She said, well, they, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. They asked, where have you been? Why haven't you been coming to the air raid shelter? We, did you leave town or something? She said, no, I've been staying at home. And, uh, and so they asked, well, why would you do that? And they said, well, I was reading in the Bible, the book of Psalms, where it says God neither slumbers nor sleeps. And I figured there's no reason for both of us staying up. Now, that's kind of a funny story. And like I said, it's told to be a true story. But there's a lot of truth there that needs to be applied to our 
acceptance and action based on the word of God. See, there are things that the Bible says have already been done for us. And so for us to pray about those things or ask God for those things or seek for those things to be done is a waste of time. The things that have already been done for us are our possessions. It's like the guy in the prayer meeting that prays, oh, Lord, forgive everybody's sins. Well, that's a waste of words. The Bible says Jesus has already taken, the, taken away the sins of the world. God's done everything he can do about forgiving everybody's sins, and he covered that territory very, very adequately. Well, what should we do? Well, in the subject of healing, I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 53 at what's already been done. Now, when Isaiah is speaking about it, it's not yet done. From his point of view, from his vantage point, it was something that was to be done and revealed to him by the Holy Ghost. Let's start reading in verse 4. Well, let's back up and start in verse 3, I guess. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows. This is the word pains. And acquainted with grief, this is the word sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and wounded or and afflicted. Now, in case somebody doesn't accept the fact, and and it's a very simple thing to do, and you can look it up on your phone or your iPad or a tablet or whatever you've got nowadays. Uh, concordances are, are just at our fingertips now. Not, it didn't used to be that way, but they're, they're very accessible now. All you have to do is look up those words and find out that that's what those words mean. Now, if you get a, um, a word study concordance or a lexicon, you can find out that those words are translated in other places from the Hebrew as sicknesses and pains. This is one of the few, if not the only times, that it's translated griefs and sorrows. Now, the question has to be asked, why would the translators take a word that they translate sickness and pains in other places and translate griefs and sorrows and here where it's talking about Jesus? And, and the only explanation I can give you, and it's just a supposition, I don't know this to be true, but the only explanation I can give you is that the translators couldn't, ex- couldn't accept what the words themselves were saying about the work of Jesus. You know as well as I do that sickness, uh, the origin of sickness And God's willingness to heal is of great controversy even today in the modern day church. And we should know more about the things of God today than they knew when they translated the King James Bible back in, what was it, 1400-something? A long time ago, whenever it was. We should know more about God and how he operates and what belongs to us than they did. So if it's hard for people to accept the truth of, of healing today, how much harder would it have been in those days? Well, whether that's the case or not, whether that's the reason or not, we don't know for sure. It seems to make sense to me. But regardless of the fact, we know of a certainty that these words mean sickness and pains. Now, in case you don't want to accept the the concordance to be the the, uh, determining factor, in case you want to to take a position that I've heard others take, they say, well, it's the, the the sentence structure that determines how the words should be used and what they should be translated to be. Well, if that's the case, then you need to realize that God gave us a Holy Ghost commentary on these verses. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Talking about the ministry of Jesus, it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick. Not part of them, not a few of them. And healed all that were sick. Now, how did, why did he do that? Well, he did that because he was the son of God, Pastor Mike. 
Jesus was sent to the earth to heal everybody to prove that he was the son of God. Well, then the next verse of scripture should tell us that, shouldn't it? But it doesn't. He healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Now, I want you to notice right there, it says that Jesus healed all that were sick in connection with what Isaiah said about the work of Jesus. Yeah, but wait a minute. It said Jesus has already fulfilled that. It said Jesus fulfilled that when he came to the earth and healed people here during his earthly ministry. Well, if that's the case, then he saved them when he was here too. Jesus said, it says of Jesus, the scripture says of Jesus, that he came and preached the truth of God's plan for mankind to fulfill the scripture that says that he was a light to the Gentiles. So if we're going to take that word fulfilled as meaning the end of something, then that means Jesus saved the Gentiles while he was here on the earth before he ever went to the cross. Well, you know that didn't happen, don't you? Well, then what does this mean? It means Jesus came to the earth to fulfill the scriptures, the prophecies, including Isaiah's prophecy, that were written and foretold before time about the work that he would do. And what work did Jesus do in connection with the fulfilling of Isaiah's prophecy? Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Notice what it says. He healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. What did Isaiah say? What did Matthew tell us by the Holy Ghost that Isaiah said? Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. It's almost like God knew that people would resist the truth of the word concerning sickness and disease. So he gave us a, a, a personal commentary. Now you can go to the, the Bible bookstore and you can find commentaries on just about anything and everything, any, any subject and every subject you want to. A lot of them about healing and sickness. And a lot of commentators will say, well, it's not the will of God to heal everybody. We know, of course, that God can heal, they'll say. He has the power to heal because God can do anything. But it's not his will to heal everybody. But here's the Holy Ghost commentary, folks. Jesus healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet himself, took our infirmities and bare our sickness. In other words, Jesus began to take people's sicknesses and bear their pains here on the earth, even as he was on the way to the cross. To reveal the will of the Father, to reveal the goodness and nature of God, even before he got to the cross to pay the ultimate price. Back to Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Interestingly enough, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is considered by all Bible scholars to be the Messianic chapter. And in the Messianic chapter, the chapter that tells us more information, more concise information... It's a, the most concise gathering of information of any chapter, any passage that we have about the work of Jesus on the cross. And of that messianic chapter, that concise gathering of information about Jesus and the work that he would do for us as our substitute on the cross, there's only one time in this chapter that the word surely is used. S-U-R-E-L-Y. Surely. And that's concerning sickness and disease. Now, it seems like, since the church makes a much bigger deal out of the forgiveness of sins than it does the healing of our bodies, it seems that if the church was in line with the plan and the purpose of God concerning the work of Jesus, the surely would be in connection with forgiveness of sins and not sickness and disease, the healing of sickness and disease, or the bearing away of sickness and disease. Doesn't it seem that way? It sure does to me. 
seems to me that the surely is going to be in the part, the part that God's trying to emphasize. Now, why would God emphasize the bearing away of sickness and disease over the bearing away of sin? Because everybody accepts the sin part. God's trying to put special emphasis by the Holy Ghost, knowing what the future would be from the time that he spoke these words to Isaiah. He knew what the future would be and that there would be much more resistance to the work of Jesus concerning sickness and disease than the work of Jesus concerning sin. So he said, surely, surely of a truth, another translation says, Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. That has to do with sins. He was wounded or bruised, excuse me, wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now the only difference between iniquities and sins is who committed them. One of the words means Adam's sin. The other word means your personal sins. See, you weren't born into spiritual death because of your sin. You were born into spiritual death because of Adam's sin. So even if you had some way to pay the price for your own sins, you'd still wind up as a candidate for hell. Because somebody's got to pay for the original sin that opened the door to sin and death to begin with, and that was Adam. So he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. He took care of the original sin and any individual sins that you would be guilty of too. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now let me ask you a question before we go any further. When does everybody agree that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities? Does anybody say that Jesus finished that and accomplished that before he went to the cross? Does anybody claim, anybody that you know of, any Christian teacher in any form whatsoever, teach that Jesus was our substitute other than through the work of the cross? I don't know of anybody. I don't know of anybody that's taken seriously. You might have some crackpot one, you know, out here, here and there. But I don't know of anybody that's taken seriously that would ever claim that this work of Jesus about being wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, suffering as our substitute, would be any place or in any manner other than the cross. Do you? Well, then that's what he's talking about, isn't it? He was wounded for our transgressions on the cross. He was bruised for our iniquities on the cross. The chastisement of our peace, this word peace is also the word prosperity. It means shalom. It means well-being in every area. Jesus paid a price for you to, to be well, for you to be prosperous. He paid a price for you to do well or fare well in every area of your life. He paid a price for that. The chastisement, punishment of our peace was upon him. He paid a price for you to have well-being in every area of life, including finances. This word is translated in Psalm 35, verse 27. Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. That's this word. It's this word to translate peace in verse 5. Again, it's the Hebrew word shalom. So he was wounded for our transgressions on the cross. He was bruised for our iniquities on the cross. The chastisement of our peace was upon him on the cross. And with his stripes, we are healed on the cross. This is the work on the cross. And notice, 
I believe God is showing forth his wisdom in the way that he gave this information to us. God in his wisdom knew that the church would pick and choose. The church treats this like a buffet table. Well, we want the sins part, but we don't want the sickness part, and we just can't accept that prosperity part. So we'll take this part and leave that part alone. But they're all in the same verse. They're all in the same verse. He made it absolutely impossible for you to take one without the other. You can't read the one without reading over the others. He included them in the same verse. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now notice how Isaiah sees this. Isaiah speaks to something that's going to happen hundreds of years in the future, and he says, he was wounded. He was bruised. The chastisement of our peace was on him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He, work, he looks to a finished work, but a finished work that yet, hasn't yet happened. But now turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2. The Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. 1 Peter chapter 2 gives us a look backwards, not a look forward. Isaiah is a look forward. Peter gives us a look backward. Speaking of the work of Jesus after the cross, after the resurrection of the dead, notice it says, um, well, we'll look at verse 21 just to show you that he's talking about Jesus. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Then it speaks of certain things about Jesus on the way to the cross and so forth. Notice in verse 24, 1 Peter 2, 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body. We know that's the cross, don't we? Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. He even spells it out. In case we didn't know where that was, he spells it out on the tree or on the cross. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. Notice what he said that the work of Jesus accomplished. Making us dead to sins and alive unto righteousness. In other words, the substitution was, took place. An exchange, spiritual death for spiritual life, spiritual death for eternal life, spiritual death for righteousness. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree or on the cross, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness. Notice the last phrase of verse 24. By whose stripes you were healed. Now notice the change in tenses. Isaiah says this is what Jesus is going to do. Peter said this is what Jesus did do. Isaiah says this is the work that's going to take place hundreds of years down the road when the Messiah comes as their substitute. When the Messiah is hanged on a tree. When he's killed. Dies the death that you and I deserve. He'll be our substitute for sins. He'll be our substitute for peace or prosperity. Paying the price for poverty, in other words. And he'll be our price for sickness and disease. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our disease. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our disease. Peter looks from the other direction. Peter writes some years after Jesus has been raised from the dead, after he was a witness of Jesus raised from the dead, a witness to him dying on the cross, a witness to him being alive after the resurrection. 
And he said that Jesus on the tree bare our sins in his own body. He said the result of that was that now we're dead unto sins, but alive unto righteousness. And then he says, looking back, by whose stripes you were healed. Now, folks, what I want you to see here is that Isaiah says by the Holy Ghost that this will be accomplished. In the mind of God, it already was, but it hadn't yet taken place when he wrote the words of uh, chapter 53. But Peter says it's already something that's taken place, done, finished, and completed. Do you realize, therefore, that for us to ask God for something that has already been accomplished would be just as foolish as us to pray like the guy in the prayer meeting, Lord, save everybody, forgive everybody's sins? He's already done his part. The only part left to do is to tell people the good news and have them accept it by faith. So many times people are praying for things that already belong to them. And they're wasting their time. We don't have to pray for things that belong to them, belong to us. They already belong to us. What do we do? We take hold of them by faith. We take hold of them by faith. Now turn with me over to to, uh, um, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Some people say, oh, Pastor Mike, that sounds so good. If only I could accept that. Well, I can. Some people refuse to, choose not to, but not me. I can believe it. I can believe it because God said it. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, I want you to start reading with me in verse 21. It said, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are are parts of Syria, outside of the land of Israel. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. Now, thou son of David is a messianic term. It means that she's associating Jesus with the prophecy about the ruler coming from the loins of David and the government never passing from away from him. In other words, it's speaking of the Messiah. So when she says, have mercy on me, thou son of David, she's saying, I believe you're the Messiah. I've heard enough about you that I believe you're the Messiah. Now, folks, what are people supposed to believe besides that? What were people supposed to believe in Jesus' day other than God sent him? He was a messenger of God, and he was sent to, be the, to do the work of the Messiah. What was Jesus expecting of people to believe beyond that? Nothing. That's it. That's the most you could believe for back then. That's the most understanding anybody could have. And that's more than most of the Jewish rabbis understood or accepted. You remember Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 by night under the cover of darkness. And he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He's not willing to say we believe you're the Messiah. But this woman believes. We don't know what she's heard. We don't know what her experience is. But whatever it is, is enough for her to accept the reality that Jesus is the one sent from God to save the world. So she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Can you find me any place in the scripture where somebody cried out to Jesus for mercy and he said no? Can you think of one? Can you think of any example in Scripture where somebody cried out to the Lord for mercy 
And he said, no. This is the only one that starts that way. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She's not even there looking for something for herself. She's looking for deliverance for her daughter. Deliverance and healing for her daughter. But he answered her not a word. He answered her not a word. He answered her not a word. I don't know about you, but I, I don't like that. When I ask God questions and he doesn't answer me, I don't like that. What we do about it in those situations determines what we're going to have as a result. She doesn't give up. Say, well, okay, I thought you were the Messiah, but I guess I was wrong. A Messiah wouldn't act like this. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away, for she cries after us. This is funny to me. Because if the disciples had one job, it was crowd control. So instead of them being able to get rid of her, they come and say to him, send her away. In other words, we can't get rid of this woman. I like that about her. And God seems to like that about people too. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now he explains why he hadn't answered her. You say, I'm only sent to the Jews. And you're not of the Jews. You may believe the right thing. You may know who I am. But you're not of the Jews. And my ministry is of the Jews. I'm sent to them and them only. Well, that ought to be enough reason to send her away or get rid of her, shouldn't it? What'd she do? Then came she and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. Now, folks, I want you to realize the first two things that this woman does First thing she does is ask for mercy. The second thing she does is she says, help me. Those are things God can't resist. Or let me say it this way. Those are things that God can't resist under the right circumstances. What are her right circumstances? She won't give up. And when she's faced with an obstacle, she worships him. Now we could teach forever on this point. That's not my subject tonight, but boy, there's truth here that people really need to get a hold of. Because so many times people run into obstacles that maybe they're reaching out in faith. They, just, they attempt to claim the blessing of healing by the word. And they don't get results. Things don't happen as quickly as they want to or it doesn't turn out the way that they expect. Or they go back to the doctor and the doctor says nothing has changed or maybe things have gotten worse. And that's the point where they give up. Not this woman. When she finds out that there's a reason why Jesus won't help her or answer her, she worships him. Now, folks, you wouldn't worship somebody that you weren't convinced was God. She shows her faith in who he is in spite of Jesus just having said, I'm not sent to you. But she worships him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not meet or right or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. To take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. To take the children's bread. It's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Now, what is it she's looking for? She's looking for deliverance and healing for her daughter. What does Jesus say healing and deliverance is? The children's bread. Now, once you get this, this is Jesus, the Son of God. D defining 
healing and deliverance. He says, this is not some wild-eyed preacher, this is Jesus. And Jesus says that healing and deliverance is the children's bread. Now, what do you understand that he's talking about when he uses the term or the illustration of the children's bread? Bread is an illustration. It's symbolic of food. It's symbolic of provision. And no father has any greater responsibility than to feed his children. It's not the only responsibility he has, but it's number one. Because it doesn't matter if they have a place to live. If there's not food on the table, he's not taking care of his family. Children's bread represents the, the most basic provision, the most basic care that a father could ever have for his children. And Jesus says that healing and deliverance is the children's basic necessities or provision. And he says it's not right or appropriate to take the children's bread or those possessions, that provision that belongs to the children of, of God, God's chosen people, and to cast it to dogs. Dogs is a term for the Gentiles, anybody outside the Jewish nation. And the woman said, well, I didn't think it was going to work, but I thought I'd give it a shot. Now, she bases her answer on his word. She still won't give up. He's given her two reasons why she can't have what she wants. And she says, truth, Lord. By the way, everything that God says is the truth. So if you're going to make a case, you better build it on the word. There is no case against the word. So she says, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. What makes her faith great? The characteristics we've just identified. She believes who Jesus is. She refuses to give up. She worships him in the face of trouble and seeks his help and builds her case on the word. And that's the kind of characteristic of, those are the characteristics of faith that gets results. Now I want you to realize what Jesus does. Jesus goes outside the ones that he sent to deliver and to heal to respond to this woman's faith. Her faith crossed the lines of Jesus' mission. No wonder Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes. No matter what race, no matter what nationality, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your circumstance is, whether you're rich or poor, no matter what side of the tracks you come from, all things are possible to him that believes. No matter how long you've had your situation, no matter how critical it is, no matter what the doctor says about it, all things are possible to him that believes. So Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. She was healed and delivered from that very hour. Healed and delivered from that very hour. Now some would say, oh, but if only we were the children of God like that. 
If only we were the children who the bread was for. Look with me to two passages of scripture. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Look with me to Romans chapter 8 verse 16. Romans chapter 8 verse 16. Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost. And he says in verse 15, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. This word adoption literally means adult sonship. You have received the spirit of adult sonship whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, folks, if healing and deliverance was the children's bread in the Old Covenant, why would healing be uh, something other than the children's bread under the New Covenant? Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, that we have a better covenant established upon better promises. It doesn't say we have a different covenant. It doesn't say we have a substitute covenant. It says we have a better covenant. Now, the only way you can have a better covenant is have all the benefits of the Old Covenant plus some. And that's exactly what we have. We have all the benefits of the Old Covenant, the blessings of Abraham, and we have the right to be born again, recreated by the Spirit of God, made a new creature in Christ Jesus, made the righteousness of God. That's the better covenant we have. And notice what Paul says about that better covenant. The Spirit of God bears witness. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. He didn't say that we're going to be the children of God. He didn't say when we get to heaven we'd be the children of God. He said we are the children of God now. Look with me over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. John says, writing to the church, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Sons are children, aren't they? Therefore the world knew us not, or knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Notice verse 2, the first part of verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Well, if we were the sons of God in John's day, shouldn't we be the sons of God several thousand years later? Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Yeah, but let's keep reading that verse, Pastor Mike. Okay. We said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when, we shall, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What does that mean? That means when Jesus appears, we'll receive our redeemed bodies. We don't yet have our redeemed bodies. But when Jesus comes, we'll be caught up into the air, transformed in the moment of time. Our mortal flesh will turn into immortal flesh. And we'll be with him forever and throughout eternity. Yeah, but what about before then? We need to know where we are now. That's why John said in the first part of the verse, Beloved, now, even before you receive your redeemed body, now are we the sons of God. Well, if we're the sons of God and the children of God now, then that means healing and deliverance belongs to you already. Healing and deliverance is the children's bread. Jesus purchased it. Peter says so, by whose stripes you were healed. Healing is already your possession. Struggle and strive and, and, and ball and squall and try to get God to heal you is the biggest mistake you could ever make. You don't have to try to get something that's already yours. What do we do? We take hold of it by faith. 
How do you do that, Pastor Mike? You say, no matter what it looks like, no matter how it feels, I believe God's word to be true. Well, I sure don't look healed, though. I sure don't feel healed. That's why it takes faith. That's why faith says, no matter how I look or how I feel, the word of God is true. And the word of God says that I was healed by the stripes of Jesus. The word of God says, healing is mine. Healing is mine. You know, I read after a lot of guys like F.F. F. Bosworth and Smith Wigglesworth and, and John Lake and different guys like that. And uh, Bosworth's ministry is, is of great interest to me. He was uh, uh, a man that, uh, well, he was a, a much older man during the heating revival. There was a, a heating revival that, that was operating in the United States from 1947 to about 1955, 56, somewhere around there. Uh, maybe some of the last little bits of it up to 57. And, uh, and during those days, there were all kinds of uh, evangelists that were going out in tent meetings and, and holding um, uh, crusades of different types in different venues and, and so forth. Well, Bosworth was already an old man by then. He had done most of his ministry in earlier years and, and frankly had retired from ministry. And there was, a, uh, there was a man that was greatly used in the, uh, the healing revival, the two greatest uh, biggest names that were that God used in the healing revival. One was a name, man by the name of Oral Roberts. I'm sure you've heard of him. The other is less well known nowadays. His name was William Branham. God used Branham as a prophet, and there would be things that uh, that he would minister through Brother Branham in a, in a very unique way. And Brother Branham, there are some uh, videotapes, a few videotapes, not too many, but a couple of videotapes out there where you can find out who he was and. See how he ministered in, uh, limitedly. And he was a real, real small, mousy kind of guy. He had a high-pitched voice and just not the kind of guy that you would put a face on God using in, in great power. And maybe that's part of the reason he used him. I don't know. But anyway, Brother Branham would, um, would start off preaching, and, and it would take him a while to get going. And you could tell when the Holy Ghost would come on him because He'd change. His countenance would change. Everything about him would change. His voice would change. Uh, his his uh, confidence would change. Just he'd be transformed to another man almost in front of your eyes. Well, he'd preach for a while, and then uh, and then he'd call for the sick, and and uh, and he usually the the uh, couple of videos I've seen usually have him bringing people up on the platform. The guys that worked his. Uh, uh, crusades would bring him up on the platform, and this guy he'd fidget. He couldn't hardly stand still to save his life. And he'd fidget and he'd look around and, and he'd, he'd say, Now, dear sister, he said, uh, uh, do I know you? No. Have you ever been in our meetings before? No. Have you ever met me before? He'd go through this whole thing trying to, trying to show people that, that they didn't know each other and, and so forth because he knew the way that God would use him. And uh, uh, all of a sudden in this video, one video I'm thinking of, all of a sudden the Holy Ghost came upon him. He straightened up. And he pointed at her, and he told her exactly what was wrong with her. He told her where she lived, he told her what her house looked like, he told her what her situation was, what the doctor had told her, told, just described everything about it. In just a moment of time. He said, now, is every bit of that right? Did I miss it on one point? She said, no, you said it exactly right. That's exactly what the doctor told me word for word today. He said, well, go your way, be healed. And that was it. Didn't lay hands on anybody. She didn't fall, nothing, you know, extraordinary 
took place from the outward appearance and people would walk off healed. Well, when Branham came on the scene, uh, some of the men that worked with him could see that he was not an evangelist. And the thing that cost Branham his ministry was he got to teaching things that he didn't know anything about. He began calling himself the angel of the covenant. He made the mistake, the same mistake that John Alexander Dowie did. Jesus is the angel of the covenant. And, uh, and so people could see right off that he was not a teacher. And as long as he stayed in the area that God had for him uh, uh, to be used as a prophet, then he was on good territory. But he wanted to teach. For some reason, he just had the idea that he wanted to teach. And so he got off into to things that, that uh, he had no business teaching or talking about or talking about things he didn't know. Well, some of these older ministers that were involved in uh, Branham's ministry, helping him get started and put on his crusades, approached Brother Bosworth. Bosworth at that point in time would have been his late 70s. Um, yeah, late 70s, I guess. And so they approached him and he said, this guy needs somebody that's older and seasoned in ministry. He needs somebody that can answer the critics. And you know the word. And so Bosworth came out of retirement to help Brother Branham. And there's some famous occurrences, famous cases that took place where um, there was one uh, doctor's medical association that uh, filed suit against uh, Branham for uh, practicing medicine without a license. Well, Bosworth's the one that went and uh, represented him in court. And there was a whole big thing about, uh, printed up in the paper about the questions that they asked, and Bosworth would answer them according to the Bible. I mean, tied them up in knots. And um, uh, it, it was just fascinating how, how God used him. Well, this was the tail end of Bosworth's ministry, but the earlier part of Bosworth's ministry, before he retired, before he, you know, his planned retirement, he would be used in, uh, in great campaigns and crusades in different cities. And if you've ever gotten his book, Christ the Healer, and I recommend it highly to everybody, if you've ever gotten the book, Christ the Healer, you can see pictures in there of these auditoriums that were packed to the gills. And, and these were depression days, by and large, where people didn't have anything. They didn't have any money. They didn't have anything to, to, uh, to use money on for distractions or anything like that. So in some ways, it helped people um, or helped boost the crowds for them to come out. But Bosworth made a statement one time. I read after things like that, and I think, well, why don't things happen like that today? Why don't we have ministers operating in the same way today that Bosworth did? Because Bosworth, Bosworth never claimed some special anointing. He never claimed a healing anointing. He never claimed something special from God in any way whatsoever. Obviously, he was gifted to teach. Everybody could see that. But, uh, but people really don't associate a teaching ministry with uh, signs and wonders and miracles and so forth like he had. And, uh, and I saw something written. It took me a long time to find it. But I saw him make a statement. It was in an interview that he had with a Pentecostal uh, organization, a little magazine that they were publishing. And so they asked him about his, uh, about his meetings and his campaigns. And he said this. He said, well, he said, the secret to my success is that I usually go places and I'm telling people for the first time that healing belongs to them. He said, now if I was coming to your churches where people have been told about healing but haven't seen it and they've developed a uh, resistance of unbelief year after year after year and then had it explained away and so forth, he said, I wouldn't get the same results. 
But he said, that's the reason I go to open-air venues or open-to-public venues. Many of them were in indoor meetings and auditoriums and, and things like that. But he said, that's why I go to, to public meetings. He said, because I want to get people in there that are seeing for the first time, many of them seeing for the first time, what the Bible says about healing belongs to them. Because if I can just get them to simply accept the truth of the word, that healing is already theirs. And get them to act on the word, get them to do what I tell them to do about confessing the word and acting in faith. He said, that's how I get results. And he got phenomenal results. Phenomenal results. Because he's telling people what belongs to them. Well, that's not the case for us. We've already heard that it belongs to us. So what do we do? We get people coming in from the outside and they've never heard before. And you get them taking hold of it for the first time. You can get a lot more instant results with them than you can with people that have heard it all their lives. And don't get me wrong, I'm not putting it down. I'm not saying that the people that have never heard are better off than the rest of us. Because those of us that know about it and those of us that know how to operate in faith should be walking in a level of divine health anyway, shouldn't we? We should be walking in a measure of divine health. And for that reason, I realize that many of you are here not only to, to uh, or primarily to hear about how to minister healing and what the Bible says about healing so that you can help somebody else because you might not be in immediate need for healing yourself. A secondary reason might be to stay built up in the area of healing, which we all need to do, so that we can maintain the level of divine health. But see, so many times people are expecting instant results from people that God expects because of their level of maturity and their level of development that God expects for them to take hold of on their own. Uh, somebody asked me earlier this evening about uh, healing school. Uh, the healing school that I was in with Brother Hagen for many years. I was around him for a long time. And of those many years that I was with Brother Hagen, I saw three or four cases that you would consider to be miraculous or spectacular over a period of five or six years. They wouldn't even happen once a year. Now we tell the stories and sometimes he would tell those stories about those miraculous cases or, or you know, spectacular events and people would get the idea, man, that stuff's happening all the time. But it wasn't. Most of the time his healing schools were just like this healing school where he's teaching the truth of healing. He's ministering healing, the truth of healing from the word of God to those that needed healing for their bodies so that they could take hold of it and appropriate it for themselves. And many did. Many did. And secondarily, he was teaching healing to the students that were, that were there at Ramah so that they'd know how to minister healing to others. See, folks, we've got a responsibility to the truth. We've got a responsibility to the truth. Now, don't get me wrong. I pray for signs and wonders and miracles more than anybody you know. I'm praying for them constantly. But who are those signs and wonders and miracles going to be for? For us? Am I going to do one for you and then you turn around and do one for me? God didn't give miracles and gifts of healings to the church for the church to entertain herself with. But for the church to reach the world with. Amen? Now I believe there are some things that are going to happen that are going to bring people in from the outside. It may be something simple like we hit up on an advertising method that causes people to come in. I don't know. It may be that we have some kind of special occurrence that people hear about and come to, to uh, 
experience. I don't know. I don't really care. doesn't matter to me how it works. But that's what I'm expecting to work. Because the reality is, if we're going to get spectacular things to occur, we're going to have to get, him, get the people from the outside to come to us. Or else we're going to have to go to them. One of the two. You look at the book of Acts, you'll find out most of the healings happened in the street. You'll find that most of the miracles took place outside of church services. Now, there were a couple of occasions. Like the guy that fell down dead after Paul preached till midnight. He was raised from the dead, but he wasn't even raised from the dead instantly. You read the story and Paul goes to him after everybody pronounces him dead. And he says, don't worry about him. His life's in him. And by the next morning, by sunup the next morning, the guy's alive. But it never tells us when he revived. The man left him laid out until, and just kept going with the meeting until he got up. Maybe that was the signal to close. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Quit the service when the dead are raised. I think we've got a different and a skewed idea. A skewed picture of how things really are supposed to work. We've got a responsibility to the truth. But the reality is healing belongs to you. Don't spend any of your time praying for healing. You don't pray for things that belong to you. You claim by faith what's yours. So let's all stand. We preached long enough. Let's all stand and let's lift our hands and let's do what this woman did. Let's worship him. Let's thank him for what belongs to us. Hallelujah. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you bore our sicknesses. You carried our pains. And with your stripes, we were healed. By the stripes upon your back, healing was purchased and accomplished for us. Thank you, Father, that we're healed from the top of our head to the soles of our feet because that's what Jesus paid for. Thank you, Father, that no matter what it looks, looks like, no matter how it feels, no matter what the doctor says, healing is ours. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. We bless you. We magnify your name. We glorify you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for healing. We give you the sacrifice of praise. We thank you for the healing that may not yet be a, appearing in our flesh. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that healing is ours. Just as real as Jesus made us righteous, Jesus healed our bodies. We curse sickness and disease and we command it to leave our flesh. It has no right to stay in our bodies because healing was purchased for us by the precious blood of Jesus. Oh, the precious blood of Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that healing is ours. Thank you that it's ours. We don't have to struggle. We don't have to strive. And you even said, Lord, in your word, that we which have believed do enter into rest. So we rest in your healing mercy. We rest in the possession of healing that belongs to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your holy name. Blessed be your holy name. Blessed be your holy name. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. You are good, Lord, and your mercy endures forever. 
You are good and your mercy endures forever. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that healing and deliverance is ours. As children of God, it's our possession. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. That holy name. That name above every name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord. We magnify you. We exalt your name. We exalt your word. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for the great price that was paid on our behalf. The offering of your Son, our Lord and Savior. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Blessed, blessed, blessed be the name of Jesus. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. Hallelujah. 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 Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. One of those spectacular occurrences that happened in healing school was as we were worshiping God one afternoon after the teaching of the word. The presence of God settled in on the room just like it has now. And Brother Hagin just said, the presence of the Lord is here. You don't need anybody to lay hands on you. Just reach up and take hold of what you need. People all over the room just reached up. Brother Hagin described it later on. He said, I could see the cloud. The Bible talks about the presence of the Lord being like a glory cloud. He said, I could see the cloud. He didn't say anything about it to the people. He said, I could see the cloud, and I could see hands going up all around the room, reaching up into that cloud. One lady, she had a tube in her nose. Most of us assumed, the workers in healing school assumed, that it was an oxygen tube. But it wasn't. It was a feeding tube. And she reached up and pulled that feeding tube. It was wound through her nose and down into her throat. The doctors had slit her esophagus. She had had uh, 
I think, 17 different operations to fix it. They were doing some other kind of surgery and accidentally slit her esophagus, and they couldn't fix it, and so they could only feed her through this tube. And she just reached up and started pulling that tube out of her nose. She said, that's it. I received my healing in Jesus' name. She went across the street from the campus of Rama. There used to be a Mexican restaurant there. Sat down. Hadn't had a bite of solid food for 18 months. Sat down and ate two Mexican dinners. Completely healed. Totally healed. She came back and told the story the next day. Here was a miracle that took place and the rest of us didn't even know what was happening. All because somebody reached out in faith and responded to the presence of the Lord. That presence is here. He's here because we've worshipped him. We've exalted his word in the name of Jesus. So whatever you need, just reach up and take hold of it. Say, it's mine. I have it now. Hallelujah. Lord, we receive our healing. We take hold of that which belongs to us. The healing and deliverance that Jesus purchased for us. We take hold of it in Jesus' precious name. Blessed be the name of Jesus. 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 Say it after me. It's mine. Healing is mine. I have it now. By faith, according to the word of God. Healing and deliverance belongs to me. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, if you maintain that confession that it's yours, no matter what it looks like, no matter how it feels, no matter how long it takes, you maintain that confession based on the truth of the Word of God. There's nothing the devil can do to keep it from being true, being real, and coming to pass in your life. Not a thing in the world. It's impossible. Thank God that healing is ours. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.